You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today we're here to discuss the new book by David Schmitz, Living Together, Inventing the Moral Sciences. The way this will go is that David will have 20 minutes to give a presentation of his book, and then we will have a panel discussion uh, with Ryan Muldoon and Margaret Shapis. David is the Presidential Chair of Moral Sciences at West Virginia University. He's also the Director of the Social Philosophy and Policy Center at WVU. Um, Before that, David was the founding director of the University of Arizona Center for uh, the Philosophy of Freedom, and he was the director of that center until 2023 and moving to WVU. Uh, David is the editor-in-chief of the journal Social Philosophy and Policy. Uh, Ryan Muldoon is a professor of philosophy at the University of Buffalo, where he is also the director uh, for undergraduate studies in philosophy, politics, and economics program in the College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Ryan is the author of a fantastic book called Social Contract Theory for a Diverse World Beyond Tolerance. Margaret is a professor of philosophy and economics at the University of British Columbia. Her research interests span across history and philosophy of science, history and philosophy of economics, science studies, and early modern philosophy. Uh, One of her main books is A Philosopher's Economist, Hume and the Rise of Capitalism. Now, what we'll do is, is, again, as I said, David will have a chance to talk describing his book, and then we will hear directly from Ryan and Margaret. I want to thank you all for being here today to discuss this great new book, Living Together. So the floor is yours, Dave. So this comes at the end of uh, you know, a longish career, and it has occurred to me as, over the last few years that this has been what I've been working on for my whole career, although I didn't know that until recently. Uh, But for various reasons, I ended up, I was a biology major, uh, ended up doing a philosophy major as as well as an undergraduate, then started philosophy in graduate school, then ended up doing an economics master's degree, and then finished in philosophy with the PhD. Uh, Then I went to Yale and I was there for six years. While I was there, I sat in on courses in the law school, the really memorable ones being courses on property taught by Robert Ellickson and then Carol Rose. So that influenced my thinking greatly. I was thinking that, oh, I thought that there was some grand debate between ideologies like capitalism and socialism. And now I realize, well, there there are grand debates, but 
that's not what it's about in in their fields. In their fields, the questions aren't about a Lockean proviso, say, uh, but about what happens if a if a settler accidentally thinks he's homesteading, but in fact is on somebody else's land and builds a cabin and plants a crop, and then the real the one who has the uh, the better pedigreed deed to the land uh, shows up and, and tries to evict him. What happens then? Or what happens when somebody decides to open up a certain kind of business and the community says, uh, wait a minute, we aren't zoned for that. And so, well, what do you mean zone? Or somebody flies over your land at 10,000 feet and you want to sue them for trespassing and Pacific Air Transport says, uh, I don't think it's trespassing if it happens at 10,000 feet. And a judge has to decide sometimes uh, what a judge wants to do is find a way in which the law is already settled, although perhaps in ways that the litigants didn't see, but ways in which in retrospect, they the litigants walk out saying, well, I didn't get what I wanted, but I should have seen it coming. I should have seen that, you know, the precedent I was using was about standing water, not about running water, and that they're really two different things. I should have seen that coming. And the reason I lost wasn't because I'm um, of an inferior race or gender or something like that. The reason I lost is because uh, the law that I thought was on my side wasn't actually on my side. And so I was seeing that what they were doing was so different from what I had been doing and from what I had been taught to do, that I ended up doing philosophy differently and started thinking about it as something that could be grounded in observation. Maybe couldn't be proven by observation, but maybe could be refuted by observation. And I had already developed uh, a taste for an appreciation of, of game theory, and that seemed to me to be a profoundly important way of connecting to the real world. So to say, well, why can't we all why can't we all be brothers? And you'd say, actually, you set up the institution so that you can't afford to be brothers, and that's why it isn't working. Uh, but if you set up the institution so that everybody comes to the marketplace with a right to say no, if they don't like what you're offering them, that means you won't necessarily get what you want. Nobody necessarily gets what they want. But if you don't get what you want, you go home and do some soul searching and come back the next day, maybe with a better offer, maybe with a better product, maybe with a better business model, maybe with a way of lowering your production cost. But in any way, in any case, you learn. And the very first time I went over overseas, uh, I couldn't explain to uh, Jacques Garello what I was working in. So finally, he introduced me. He said, uh, David is very young. Please have pity on him. I'm like, don't be too harsh with him. But anyway, he's a student of Hayek. And I hadn't read Hayek at that point. But I did later. And then I saw, oh, my goodness, I am a student of Hayek. Who knew? But now I would consider myself a, a student of uh, Adam Smith, as well as Hayek and many other people and absorb some of what they were teaching by osmosis, but also eventually by actually reading and becoming more learned in the areas. 
And so I came to appreciate that philosophy at the end of the Scottish Enlightenment was becoming a aspired to be a study of the human condition and and a scientific study of the human condition. And that meant the point wasn't to have indubitable axioms and to derive necessary truths from them that for which there were no counterexamples. The point was to jump to conclusions that could be wrong and that could have to be changed or retracted decades later when you in the same way that you might say, hey, I thought light was a certain kind of thing, and I thought the shortest distance between two points was a certain kind of thing, but it turns out that when light is bending around gravitational wells, all bets are off, uh, or at least all Newtonian bets are off. And it doesn't exactly mean Newton is wrong, but it does mean that, that it's not the end of the conversation. So I started realizing that Science is supposed to be about humility. Part of that means it's not supposed to be about regarding yourself as having proven something that can never be refuted. You come up with the best way of making sense of what you've observed, and you come up with ways of turning the principles that you're using to articulate what you've observed, you turn them into sometimes, into predictions of future observations, and then you open yourself up to turning out to be wrong. So I really started loving game theory when I started working in the economic science laboratory and seeing, hey, it's a theorem that subjects in prisoners' dilemmas defect. They contribute zero. It's, a, it's entailed by the parameters of the experimental setup that the contributions will be zero. And then you see subjects contributing 50% or 60% or 80% or something like that. And you say, what's going on here? And you say, well, one hypothesis is that interests, like an actual human being is a being with interests that do not just reduce to profit maximization or revenue maximization. That's not the only thing people are interested in. Or you say, yeah, it turns out that people aren't playing a game in exactly the way that we thought that they would be playing a game, that maybe they're playing a game in the same way that we might learn a computer program. At least, you know, when I was a kid, you'd look at the manual and you'd say, well, never mind that. I'm just going to I'm just going to type some stuff in and see what happens. And then I will learn from experience. And, yeah, people in the laboratory are doing that as well. They're saying, well, I'll try contributing half and see what happens. And then later on, you say, why isn't this paying as well in period eight as it was paying in period two? And then you say, yeah, I think I better go back and read the directions. Or you think. Yeah, I was trusting my partners to go along with something. Now it seems to me they're not going along with it, so I need to protect myself. So there's all kinds of ways in which the human condition is not uh, having insight into the human condition is not the same thing as being able to derive theorems from a neoclassical model. So all of these things were part of my maturation process as a philosopher. And eventually they culminated in in this book where I was trying to say something like, 
what have I actually observed? And what have people like Adam Smith and David Hume actually observed? Or Hayek or James Buchanan, what have they actually observed? And so what what does that tell us about the prospects for flourishing as the social animals that we are and as the political animals that we are. And one thing we can we can reread, say, Smith in the aftermath of James Buchanan, and we can say it is so interesting that Smith was seemed to be writing for uh, he called the magistrates sometimes, but public servants. Uh, he was writing for people in his classes who were going to end up being judges, maybe. And he was trying to say, in effect, hang on, you are playing a game and it can be a great game, but it's not a great game unless the rules are incentive compatible and the referee refereeing is incentive compatible. But you guys are going into the business of being referees. And after your referees, you're still going to be players. And that's going to be a problem. This game is not going to be incentive compatible. It's not going to be what it ideally could be. Although partly because in some ways, in some venues, the players would be too good at cooperating. It wouldn't be that they'd be too poor at cooperating. They'd be too good. So you'd get your business people together on Friday night. They'd have a couple of beers and agree to fix prices. And you'd say, well, that's not incentive compatible. They're going to defect on that arrangement. And then they don't. And so maybe you need something like antitrust law. I don't know that we know what Adam Smith's position on that was. But in any case, that is something that I've learn to uh, appreciate that we're in we're playing games within games and when we're playing games within games the theorems aren't going to hold and it's just not clear what political animals and social animals what they're going to come out of in the face of the collective action problems that they face and that they have the tools to solve that aren't really dreamt of in in game theory so uh, i think i'm just going to stop there i've probably talked for 15 minutes already but i'm gonna i'm gonna let it go and turn it over to uh to the other people uh in this gathering of good people okay ryan great uh thanks so much and i just want to start by saying how much i appreciate what this book is up to as i see it namely trying to get us to reorient ourselves in terms of what social, political, moral philosophy is kind of up to and what kinds of questions that it asks. And I think Dave does this really nicely by by first offering us a story, and one he acknowledges is kind of one of many stories that one could draw about how this kind of area went astray in some sense. So he, he leads with you know, Adam Smith and, and David Hume, and then suggests that what I see as sort of the accidental villain is, is uh, John Stuart Mill in breaking out uh, a logical separation between economic production and distribution, uh, such that uh, later philosophers can really take up this idea of justice as being entirely about distribution, how we, how we divide the pie, and then 
kind of leaving aside questions of how we develop the social order that fosters pies being made in the first place. And so I think, uh, or as I understand, Dave, what's going on here is this, this initial million error has kind of spawned similar sorts of errors going forward, giving a certain centrality to the wrong kinds of questions in, uh, in some theorizing about how we live together. So some of the really prominent moral theorizing that, that Dave wants us to think about a little bit is, for example, uh, Singer's uh, Shallow Pond and Esselin's Slice and Patch Thought Experiments, uh, where these are you know, very important in the literature, have spawned a lot of work, and kind of, I think, are good illustrations of the way that a lot of philosophers think about the role of, of the philosopher in thinking through questions of justice. And I think Dave's critique here is, is spot on, namely, even though these are, these are kind of interesting thought experiments, they're, they're in some sense missing a broader point that we can go back to uh, Human Smith to, to see where we kind of went wrong uh, in terms of fostering a project of sort of moral science. And the, the critique, as I see it, is just they're, they're drawing attention to this moment in time, but not how we got there in the first place. So, sure, Dave says, you save a drowning child if, if you see them drowning in a pond. But that doesn't get us to how that situation arose or why this situation helps us understand more systematic uh, procedural failures or provision more broadly or what this, this kind of a moment in time analogy illustrates about these longer run productive and organizational effects of, of a social order. Likewise, with, with the slice and patch thought experiment, there's not a question of, well, did this hospital arrange questions about what to do if the people on the next shift show up or not, or what our obligations are for kind of making the schedule so we can deal with strange events and things like this. So, uh, I think Dave's exactly right there. Uh, if we think about what what we're up to, we have to think about not these kind of very strange moments of decision, but the processes that generate the kinds of uh, interactions that we have with each other, the kinds of productive processes that we can have, and the kinds of space for cooperation that we can foster. And so I think a, a slightly more crisp way of putting some of this is the task of moral philosophy and by some extension, social and political philosophy as well, is finding the ways that we can accommodate our diverse projects and interests while fostering each other's capacity to be of service to others. I think Dave suggests this means a practical focus on finding processes that facilitate how we can let these diverse processes uh, and projects carry out. And I think Dave does this with, with kind of two central metaphors that I think are really productive to think through. So he has the map and the traffic light. So let's start with the map. So the idea here is that Dave suggests that moral theories should not be thought of as sort of decision procedures where they have some kind of inputs and they spit out a definitive output. And then if two different decision procedures conflict, we have to abandon one or the other. Instead, we can conceive of theories as, as maps of the terrain. It can show us what we think the space looks like. And on this sort of uh, way of conceiving what a theory is, it might be good that we have a few different sorts of maps, or at least it's fine, right? And different maps are going to be useful for different things in the way that, you know, a subway map is really great for getting around on the metro, but 
isn't going to be very good for driving on the highway, whereas a road map is good for a different kind of thing. And still other sorts of maps are, are good for different kinds of tasks and might be suggestive of others. And so having a way of conceiving of differing and conflicting moral theories as illustrating different ways of understanding the terrain allows us to put ourselves in conversation with each other in a way that can lead us to find out stuff that we were missing, but also shows how we can just coexist given the different kinds of projects and interests that we that we have. The other metaphor that, that Dave uses very nicely in, in this work and, and earlier in his career is the idea of a, a traffic light. So we have this problem of people using our various maps to want to get to different kinds of places and navigate the terrain and, and go where uh, we find things of value to us. But if we just do that willy-nilly, we come into conflict with each other, right? We, uh, we want to cross the same road or go beyond a point of congestion. One way of solving this is to try to kind of make a list of all the important things that people are doing and, and rank order how urgently we all need to do these things and have some way of reconciling that based on the kind of content of our activities. And that's sort of obviously unworkable if we think about what we're normally doing in traffic. It would require far too much knowledge of a central planner to carry this sort of thing out. It would bump up against all kinds of normative disputes that we would have about what is of value. But instead, we can coordinate rather simply with just traffic rules that follow a fixed pattern. Right? These traffic lights allow us to know when we can we go and when we stop. This facilitates a whole bunch of coordination, even if we have a whole morass of underlying disagreements. We don't have to work out the content of those disputes to be able to coordinate in this very important way. We can allow each other to engage in whatever projects that we see fit. I think this is a really nice way of summarizing kind of one of the major goals of a moral science and facilitating coordination amongst diverse persons. So I think these help us really ground the ambitions of what a theorist uh, in the space should be doing. It's not that we're trying to articulate the ideal society and looking for the ways that the people around us have failed our theory in some sense. Instead, as Dave describes, that we should look for what works and what doesn't and find ways of negotiating our sometimes divergent interests and constraints as we seek out meaningful lives for ourselves and others. The kind of uh, way of pulling this out that, that Dave does really nicely in in the book is he talks about what would make an ideal meal at a dinner party. And he points out two ways that our initial conceptions might go wrong. And I think this is a really insightful distillation of a lot of complex philosophy. He says, well, imagine I think that uh, a lasagna would be the ideal menu item for a dinner party. But then I discover, you know, in my pantry, I just don't have what I need to make it. So maybe then we can say there that there's a feasibility constraint. Right, I just can't do the thing that I, I think uh, would be ideal. And that's unfortunate. We have to figure out what our second best option is. But the more interesting idea, I think, is, is what Dave says. Next, namely, if I discover that my dinner guest is gluten intolerant, lasagna is no longer my ideal. I'm making something for my guest. And because of that, the ideal meal is something that my guest could eat. Uh, and so maybe a version of lasagna that is gluten-free noodles uh, is what's called for. Maybe some other dish that accommodates their interests and kind of matches 
the goals I have in mind for the meal. That becomes the ideal. And it's not that we have another feasibility constraint, but rather we were just mistaken about what the ideal was. And we learned that by discovering more about each other and negotiating those differences. I think that's a really profound idea that is is kind of neatly packaged in a easy to understand story. I think that's uh, a lot more work could be done just around this dinner party. And so towards the end of the book, Dave works to tie a bunch of threads together in, in a chapter on ecological justice that I think is really marvelous. And I think there's a really productive connection between what he does in that chapter, laying out seven principles of, of how we might go about reasoning for justice with something like Ostrom's eight principles for, for managing a commons, where it's, it's not giving us the answer, but rather giving us the kinds of considerations we should take into account when we're thinking through uh, how we go about negotiating with each other to allow each other to live lives we find meaningful. I think these, these principles are you know, really fecund. There's, there's lots of room for lots of versions of research building off of that. That would be really wonderful. And if a young student in philosophy or the social sciences picked this book up as, as their entry point into questioning how we live together better, that student would be pretty well served. I think this is a, a project of kind of recreating a moral science that, you know, as I think Dave and I agree, is, you know, really easily found originally in, in the Scottish Enlightenment and has come back to the fore in part due to the resurgence of an interest in PPE and, and uh, kind of the core research agenda of, of philosophy, politics, and economics. And I think uh, this book gives us a certain kind of map or this terrain and, and uh, agreeing with Dave. This is one of, of several possible maps, but it's a really elegant one that, that can lead to lots more work on top. And so I, I think I'll, I'll end it there, but it's, it's such a, a delightfully constructed book that really allows for, for new work on top, which I think is exciting. Okay, so Margaret? Yeah, well, thank you very much for inviting me to um, participate in this panel. And I just want to start by saying I think it's an excellent book. Yes, some of it is based or derived from prior publications, but the whole book has a, a nice integrity. And one hears Dave's voice throughout. It, it rings loud and clear. Okay, there's one chapter written by, co-authored co with Jason Brennan, but the the prose is always crisp and terse in the way that Dave speaks, and there's hardly a word out of place, and many nice examples and follow-ups in the footnotes. So it's it's a really excellent book in and of itself, before I get to the, the, the content. I might also add that it doesn't seem as beset with the typical degree of self-indulgence that one finds in much philosophy. So I also appreciate that, that Dave mentions um, interlocutors and thanks them, but one has a sense that he's writing to you, the reader. He's sort of conversing with you. And I think the book uh, works equally well to the general reader, someone who's not at all versed in this set of topics, as well as to those who are specialists. So I think it, it's really quite valuable in that respect. But of course, my role here is to be critical, and I'm sure Dave would expect nothing less. And because I work in the history and philosophy of economics and have in the last 10 or so years been particularly immersed in the Enlightenment, you know, I have things I'd like to say. 
Not too much. Um, I mean, obviously, history of philosophy is not his specialty. It's really that he's mining these people for pearls of wisdom. I found the representation of John Stuart Mill perhaps the one that was most misleading. I don't think Mill for a minute thinks that technology is ground to a halt, but just that it hasn't necessarily relieved uh, workers of a life of penury. Um, and in fact, not only do you find this in the stationary state that he envisions a time when there's considerable leisure because technology has become sufficiently uh, productive, but his analysis of the theory of capital, which is really wonderful, is that most capital doesn't have a birthday. It gets replaced within a year. And he's doing this in the 1840s, the height of the expansion of railways in, in England. And so he's very aware of, you know, and the telegraph, as Dave notes, there's a lot of things happening that are watersheds in the history of technology. But I think for Mill, the idea is that the turnover is also very, very rapid. So that would be one of my few quibbles there. This book attempts to pick up the spirit of the Enlightenment, of Hume and Smith in particular, to a lesser degree Kant, but particularly their emphasis on empiricism and the role of observation and the sort of grounding of moral thought in that context and the development of it as a science, meaning a body of knowledge. I also do believe that both Hume and Smith sought theorems in economics, and um, Hume says as much in the essay of commerce that he's looking for general theorems that will apply to, to all people. So I think that their orientation is one of seeking laws, as, as I think comes to pass in many of their aspects of their work in economics. In fact, for Hume, all he doesn't really conduct any experiments. I do uh, argue, or Carl and Venerin and I argue in our book, that Hume is a proto-econometrician, that he's looking, he embraces the law of large numbers, he's apprised of recent developments in probability theory, he's devising estimates for the money supply, the mean interest rate, uh, salient prices in the economy. He is really taken with mean reverting tendencies. So he looks to the way in which you trim outliers and look at the conversion. I mean, so there's a strong empiricism there that really, I think, grows naturally into the econometrics that develops in the 20th century. In fact, I would say that the imprint of Hume and Smith um, is not only profound and far-reaching, but never really waned, that their influence on the 19th century economists, Ricardo and Marx and Mill, is explicit, and that in so many respects, their work is still resonant with contemporary economics. I particularly like this remark made by Milton Friedman um, when he was asked uh, what has been accomplished in the last 25 years in monetary theory. He responds, what have we learned in the last 200 years since David Hume? We've advanced beyond Hume in two respects only. First, we have now a more secure grasp on the quantitative magnitudes involved. And second, we've gone one derivative beyond Hume, which he means we don't just have the velocity of money, we have the acceleration of money. But the quantity theory of money, which is, Mark Blau said, the most robust and enduring a proposition in the history of economics, I tend to agree with that. It starts with Copernicus, is really cemented and fully spelled out by the 1750s, um, building on people like John Locke 
and William Petty. And this isn't the only part of economics that I think was bequeathed to the present, but many of the contributions in price theory, public finance, trade theory, et cetera, et cetera, all of those are really there in the Enlightenment. So I think that in many ways, that has continued on into the science of economics. And I know that Dave doesn't dispute that, but I, I think it's it's more that they never got buried. And the, the part that got lost was their appreciation of moral philosophy, of, of sorry, moral psychology of sort of human behavior, what we see in Smith's wonderful theory of moral sentiments. And there I think Dave is right that we have to go back and retrieve many of those rich insights. So I want to turn to a couple of other parts of the book. His wonderful uh, metaphor, justice as traffic management, building on what Ryan was saying. So it's not the traffic of the pedestrians walking on the Strand in central London, nor the bicycle traffic in central Copenhagen. Anyone has experienced that. But it's the traffic of the, say, Los Angeles freeway that I think he has in mind. And there are many um, aspects of this metaphor that I think can be extracted to help us understand what he means by this. First, it's only adults who drive. And Dave underscores several places in the book that to be a moral being is about being mature. It's about um, knowing when to stop asking why. It's about knowing uh, when not to tread on other shoes and so forth. So when you drive, you've already signed on. You're at least age 16 in many countries. You've obtained a license. You have the means to access a vehicle, if not to purchase one. So you're part of the polity from the get-go. And there's many other aspects of this image, I think, that fits. One is that the car, as Dave points out in several places, is a lethal weapon, but that one rarely uses it that way. In fact, one hopes never to use it that way, that one is using it in a, a certainly life-affirming sense of serving our needs and getting from A to B. We wear the car on our sleeves. The brand of the car sort of suggests our social standing. Again, in Copenhagen, everyone rides big clunking bicycles. There's really no branding going on. And of course, pedestrians on the Strand are all ages. They don't need to have any kind of um, display of their social standing. But driving, of course, does this sort of in a very efficient manner. The red light, of course, singles out this importance of needing these modest restraints to reduce the likelihood of casualties. And in that sense, I think Dave is implicitly purchasing Locke's image of the night watchman that the government can, the people can more or less govern themselves except for this kind of person to make sure there aren't these infringes. Property rights, he says, this is Dave, are traffic lights, especially red lights. So there's a lot built into that claim that it's only sort of in rare instances that you need to sort of hold people back. Most of the time they're able to act in, in their own free manner. But that's where I think the metaphor ends because I don't think we're really quite as free as we think we are when we drive on the Los Angeles freeway. Of course, we've all had that experience of putting the foot on the pedal and accelerating quickly and feeling our hair rush if we're in a convertible and the sense of freedom. But one has to remember that the road itself, okay, we might choose to go to Sacramento or San Francisco. The road itself is the result of central planning. The fuel is provided or the electricity is provided by many co uh, complex 
uh, steps that are regulated um, all the way. And the, you know, the other thing I always like to say is you may be free to drive, but you're not free to park. The parking is always going to be the end point of this. And one has to remember that the context of the, the whole image is not quite as, how shall I put it, inspiring of autonomy as it might seem. The autonomy comes, of course, because we sit inside a vehicle with walls around us, listening to our own music, having our own thoughts. So there's sort of a, a freedom enhancing experience of this. But I, I guess my point now is to say this is all to a large extent illusory. This all sits within a context that is really highly regulated. And uh, to me, the freedom is as illusory as what Rousseau would say, that we, in fact, rarely do anything that is genuinely free. So I, I feel that this image of the traffic and the red light and all of that, it's rich, it's potent, but I think it also kind of helps to make the point I would like to make, which Hume did so effectively, which is that the sphere of free will is actually very, very limited, very rare, that almost everything we do has antecedent conditions that can be traced back to circumstances beyond our control, that basically just settle on our personal identity is misguided. It's essentially a flow through of various sense data. Okay, we may exercise trivial types of liberty to decide what to wear, to eat vanilla ice cream rather than strawberry. But none of this, I think, is really the sense of forging a life in a free and meaningful manner. And I think Dan Hausman, in his recent wonderful book on preferences, does a very good job of showing that preference satisfaction is, in many ways, nothing akin to well-being or achieving well-being. So I think we need to kind of step back and think about the real sphere and capacity that we have for freedom. And, of course, Dave's wish for liberty and freedom manifests itself with the claim, we don't want lots of rights. That's a, a verbatim claim. Just as we don't want lots of traffic uh, restrictions, those would both be undesirable. I guess I'm not so inclined. I actually like the pedestrian traffic on the Strand and the bicycle traffic in Copenhagen. I'd like us to shift away from this image, and I'd like us to embrace the the fact that the UN Charter of Rights, albeit fairly cemented, is nevertheless continuing to grapple with new contexts, rights about the environment, about the well-being of children, of animals, and of course, what's just around the corner, the colonization of outer space. So that we have probably in our lifetime still many more rights to see coined and grappled with. And I think that that's all for the good, that we need to um, see this as an ever-expanding list and not one that is best off shrinking down to a, a small number. Rights are flawed, but they always give the semblance of consensus, at least temporary consensus, on um, desires for education, um, for um, fulfillment, and for the well-being of our, our people and planet. I'll just end, I think, by, I'd like to say a little bit about his reason and end section, which is so intriguing at the, toward the latter part of the book. It's really grappling with the problem of moral motivation. And it does an excellent job of transcending the paradox that one needs to provide reasons for one's reasons and either, you know, wallow in an infinite regress or come up with an empty set. So the view is that we take the best means to our desired ends, 
and that we can motivate these means and give reasons for them. But the ends themselves don't need to be justified through reasons, that they can be parsed into final and instrumental, and that they can serve this rather unique kind of anchoring point in, in this moral firmament. But here's what I'd like to say, is that there's still an additional problem, the one of inventory management, that it's rare that one has a single final end or that the final end endures for one's entire life. So there's always the potential or, or prospect of revising one's ends. And to do that, of course, one needs to have rules of thumb. And those, of course, have to be revisited from time to time. The rules of thumb that would formulate the ends, whether the final or the instrumental ones. and where those rules of thumb come from, again, is going to require more justification, but it's, I think, even more appropriate to point out that one would never really be in this perfect place, that there would always be a need to go back to rethink one's ends, um, but not to do that every day of the week because one would never be able to act. But then you put them on the shelf from time to time, and then you have to decide when to take them off, dust them, think them through one more time. And that kind of um, method of reflection, I think, through these rules of thumb is always going to be imperfect. It's always going to be suboptimal. There's never going to be a kind of settled moment when one has the perfect set of ends and the rules of thumb that one has adopted line up with those so that there is absolutely no need to revisit or, or revise them. So this kind of regress problem, I think, still lurks around the corner. It's just of a different sort. So I'll stop there. There's so much more that the book helps to bring out. There, I like some of the earlier material about utilitarianism, the critiques that he offers there. I like some of the material he says about the uh, way in which the social sciences have broken from the sort of broader philosophical heritage of the 18th century. So there's a lot in the book that I think is valuable, but I've run out of time, so I'll, I'll stop at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave, do you uh, like to respond? Let me just say that um, I guess there's a there's a sense of like what it what it's like to be an author. And and if you if you ask yourself, like, what what would it be that a, like an adult uh, author would really want? And uh, I think, say, you know, Ryan and Margaret are. Uh, you know, their their models of uh, their ideals as readers, because what they've done is not just uh, understand a text, but in in lots of ways made it their own um, and and gone beyond it and just in, incorporated it and used it. And um, and that's that's as good as it gets for an author. So so I want to say uh, thank you. And uh and just uh, all all points uh, well taken, um, not disagreeable, not necessarily things that had occurred to me that I had I had thought of, but just different ways of looking at it. And so, yeah, if you you know if you remember the best conversations of your life, you go home and you say, yeah, that's that was one of those best ever conversations where you got into a jam session and. And you saw like people just riffing off in these other directions and you knew that you had something to do with it. You never felt invisible. In fact, you felt more visible because these people were incorporating 
uh, what you said and, and turning it into something else and showing that, uh, like, uh, you're not just like some kind of museum exhibit, you're soil. And there's stuff that sprouted from that soil that was unpredictable and it was, but it was awesome. Uh, so anyway, I want to thank you for awesome comments and it's, um, I don't feel satisfied about just boiling that down to uh, an adjective like that. But, um, but I am moved. It's, uh, it's, these are, this is as good as it gets. So thank you. Um, Ryan or Margaret, do you have any additional points you'd like to make? Sure. So there, I have, I have two separate things that I think are are kind of I find interesting anyway. So so one, I want to return to this this original sort of million error that I think Margaret brought out a little bit. So one thing I find really interesting in in how Dave identifies this this kind of like this breaking point, and I think it's accurate that there's a certain breaking point here that's really important that we we separate out two things that had been intertwined and then we can treat them as logically independent. So I think Margaret is right to point out that this is because of Mill's beliefs about the steady state. And this was not a unique idea to Mill, of course. You know, there's a, a at least arguably a version of the steady state in, in Smith, and there's there's a version of the steady state in Ricardo. There's a you know, version of the state with just about everybody up up until Kane, uh, through Keynes, as I understand it anyway. And it's really fascinating to me how much this, this economic understanding of the limits of growth ended up shaping a lot of what our political philosophy has been up to. And even though we've kind of broken past this notion of a steady state, once we see something more like, say, solo growth, where we have some idea that technology level is really important for determining what the equilibrium level of production looks like and things like this, but that that can push outwards. That hasn't been sort of reabsorbed into a lot of the standard uh, normative theorizing about what we do with all of this stuff and how we conceive ourselves as productive persons that then have concerns about inequality and things like this. And so... I wanted to highlight that one as sort of like a another reason to kind of return back to uh, a moral science way of, of thinking where we we can see these changes in, in economic understanding that ought to be somehow reflected back in the kind of normative questions that we ask, but we don't necessarily end up having done. I think that's a, a kind of like a really crisp instance of this sort of thing where you know philosophers still use a lot of equilibrium thinking in a way that economists, at least in this space, have kind of moved, moved beyond. And it's worth asking whether thinking about things in, in something like a steady state in equilibrium is the right way of thinking about it, where we ought to expect shifts in mutual expectations, as, as Margaret was mentioning, as, as Dave discusses in the book, that there's, there's reasons to expect constant adjustment. So that's, I think, uh, I think that's more or less uh, agreeing with Dave. And if I want to say something a bit more provo- provocative, here's where I'll push a little bit on Dave, which is, uh, so one of those features of justice that uh, Dave discusses in, in the chapter on ecological justice is that it's not contractarian. I've written a book on social contract theory, so I'll, I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. And the way I want to push back on it is, I think the, the traffic management stuff is an instance of a kind of contractarian approach where we have a public justification for a thing that helps us deal with a lot of underlying disagreement about priorities 
but we can we can see why the rules are there on our own lights, even though we might, from our our normative understanding, have derived something different. This idea of of mutual adjustment uh, and accommodation that that Dave discusses quite a bit, I think, is exactly right. But I think that's something that can be built into a a contract, and that a lot of what Dave is discussing is, is instances of how we adjust contracts or how we how we formulate a contract of incomplete information and things like this. That's, I think, a, a productive space for contract theory to be working that helps make sense of some of the core tools that uh, that Dave is deploying in this work. So I, I think, you know, he has a point if he's imagining hypothetical contractors that are in an ideal environment that never have to kind of touch real grass and think about the world as it is. Sure. Uh, but I think that's a claim about let's get away from strict ideal, uh, ideal reasoning, not so much the notion that agreement and, and a kind of public justification despite underlying normative differences, which I view as the core of a contractarian sort of view, is getting at. And I think on, on kind of the, the machinery that Dave gives us, we have reason to think that at least a thing one can do with the terrain he's laid out is develop a contractarian theory. Margaret, did you want to add anything before I give Dave a chance to wrap it up? I guess I'll just say um, I liked Ryan revisiting the stationary state concept and pointing out what I I firmly believe is that Mill is in many respects the most significant watershed in the history of economics, not just for his grappling with the production-distribution divide but also with his recognition that economics is both a material and a mental science. And as I've argued in the past, beginning to see human agency as the proximate cause of the actual salient phenomena of the economy, which arguably wasn't the case in the 18th century or in Ricardo when the core phenomena are still, you know, the price of corn is determined basically um, at the margin of cultivation and has very little to do with any agency or deliberation. There are really no individuals in Ricardo in his economics. And um, what Mill is giving rise to is what I guess someone like Hayek picks up on very firmly, which is the price system does the distribution. And many argue that's the key con- contribution of the neoclassical or marginal revolution, that it finally makes production and distribution simultaneous through the market and the pricing system. It doesn't mean that they're right, but that's the tempo or pace at which these ideas unfolded. I like roundabouts. <laughs> I don't like red lights. I hope you can pick up on that, Dave. My city, we're getting rid of four-way stop signs and putting in roundabouts. And we have this peculiar flink, blinking red light everywhere, which is interesting. And I've seen it in no other city, just in Vancouver. It's a soft, soft red. But I, I know this is all a bit facetious, but I think, I think there's, there's a real problem in not seeing that the traffic light itself is still a vestige of a long chain of central plan decisions. And I'm all for that. And they have to decide when the, how long the red light lasts and where to put them and all of that. So I'm, I don't know that you can get the metaphor to do all the explanatory work, but I still see the, the nice point about the asymmetry between the green and the red. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, Dave. Yeah, well, I, I think this is 
terrific. I mean, one thing I want to say about, uh, say, not being an expert historian is it appeared that there were things that happened. It appeared that Smith and Hume had gotten to a point where Smith could write about tariffs and people could say, what's the idea? And that could be viewed as philosophy and, and later on wouldn't, wouldn't be viewed as philosophy at all. And so I wanted to say that something happened that it was specialization, but sometimes specialization is over-specialization. And sometimes it's like, it's like a business deciding to, uh, this isn't the example I used in the book, but if a business decided, hey, specialization is good, so we're going to specialize in making shoes for the left foot, right? They would, they would be misunderstanding something, something hard to formulate about what specialization is for or when specialization is uh, constructive. So things happened. And I would say if I knew more about history, it wouldn't be that I'd have more proof, say, that Mill had this bad influence at this particular point. It would be more like if I knew more, I'd be aware of many more kinds of explanations of what happened. I'd be say, okay, well, let me talk about uh, Shaftesbury. Let me talk about whatever, a whole bunch of other people and talk about what they did. So so I was basically just saying, hey, it looks to me like Sidgwick, if Sidgwick said, here are the methods of ethics and there are methods of deciding what to do, and everybody just went along with that, then the 20th century would look like it looked. So I want to say there's an explanation and I don't, and it has explanatory power, but who knows what other things I have no clue about would also have explanatory power. So that's one of the ways in which trying to be more empirical requires being more humble as well. It's just like, I've got something that lines up with, with the handful of facts that I know. And what else can I say? Well, I probably can't say too much more about that. But I think I would not want to be remembered as saying Mill engineered some terrible redirection of philosophy. It's more like there was a reaction to what he said. And if people had been critical of what of the nature of their own reaction, then they might have been more skeptical about their own reaction. But you just you hear things in a philosophy seminar, you run with them, and that's that's how it goes. And yeah, I also think that what Ryan said about contractarianism, uh, and I and I do like uh, his book, and I think that um, yeah, there's a way forward. And I would think that if you go back to the 60s and then 70s and then 80s and the 80s were were my heyday as a as a student maturing in that ecosystem where i would say there were there were elements of that which need to be gotten past there are there are dynamics that need to be incorporated into that and not treated as like the whole point is that we had an initial position. And then the question is whether that initial position was fair. 
and uh, contractarianism is moving forward from that and needs to and and that no doubt will be will be productive but um that's basically what what uh, i w- i wanted to do was just looking looking for explanations of why 20th century moral philosophy or philosophy in general why it developed the way it did why it became a sort of a refuge of of cleverness and counterexamples and and how like by the 60s 70s 80s actually philosophy is starting to get past that i could have talked about anscombe and how important that i think she was and how important that i think developments in ancient philosophy were although i'm not an expert in that either but but to see ways in which the world decided to get back to something that was in effect less specialized and when it's less specialized when we say no we need to incorporate cognitive psychology into epistemology and that's revolutionary we need to incorporate psychology into into ethics and that's revolutionary but it also is it's a way of opening up a game in such a way that it makes it harder to tell the difference between something that's cool and sexy and something that is genuine progress so i uh, i do that with with humility and all i can hope humbly is that i've been humble enough uh, we'll see though all right thank you very much to everyone here i wish uh, dave the greatest success with this book and uh thank you both to ryan and margaret but yeah, I appreciate um, everything that you're doing in order to uh, get uh, get products out there where uh, where people can run with them. Uh, much appreciated. Really glad to be part of it. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.